Maddie. And welcome to The Millennial Minimalist. In this week's episode, Lauren speaks with American author, professor, and executive coach Josh Davis about the steps we can take to work more effectively and feel more fulfilled. Together, they break down lessons from Josh's international bestseller on time management titled Two Awesome Hours, science-based strategies to harness your best time and get your most important work done. If you are feeling overwhelmed with life and work demands, Josh argues that the answer is creating the conditions for two awesome hours of peak productivity every day. You will learn the value in being intentional about your work conditions to maximize your productivity. Plus, Josh uncovers the surprising cognitive and performance benefits of letting your mind wander. We hope that the ideas in this episode inspire you to work smarter and avoid the risk of living on autopilot. Lauren opens this conversation with a question for Josh about how two awesome hours came to be and why he believes two hours is the sweet spot. What initially inspired you to write the book and why is two hours the perfect amount of time to schedule your best work? So what initially inspired me to do it was I was having an experience that I'm pretty sure everyone else was having, which is that I would work hard throughout the day. And I'd come home and just feel really terrible about myself, about not having accomplished stuff and just focus Mm -hmm. on all the ways that there was just this huge list of things to do. And my wife was doing it. My friends were doing it. You know, everyone, even my parents who, you know, you'd think like they were at, you know, late stages of their careers. Right. I mean, they're still doing it. It's just like this thing has happened where everybody was overwhelmed and we're just, you know, it doesn't matter how much you're doing. It just, everyone feels like it's never enough. Right. Yeah. So I started to feel like that just wasn't right. That just wasn't how I wanted to live my life. I didn't think that any of these people were deserving of feeling that way every day. So for me, it was almost like a moral thing. (laughs) You know, it's like this, this can't, can't be the case. You know, this can't be how I live my entire life has to change. Uh, So what I did then was to turn to research to try to figure out, well, is there something that we can do? Because that's my background. That's you know, that's what I do. I you know, read and write about and, and research. And um, when I was in academia, you know, did some of it myself. There was this one key kind of insight that launched it. And to be honest, I don't remember exactly how I landed on this, but it was the idea. And I'm not the first person to have noticed it either. But it was the idea that sometimes you can just hit it out of the park, right? I mean, like, you know, one morning you just, you take care of figuring out how you're going to run your podcast, you know, and and now you're going to do all the marketing you need to do and now you're going to start this business, how you're going to form this team, you know, you'll write this whole proposal. I mean, you're just like one after another, you're just like doing this amazing work, right? And it doesn't even need to take that long. And then other times, if you're anything like me, you can just be worthless for three days, you know, it's just like yeah. nothing's happening, <laughs> you know, it feels that way anyway, but it, you know, it's certainly way different from the productivity in that one morning. So if that's the case, then there must be conditions to help set that up. You know, there must be something that leads you to be more likely to be amazing sometimes and not at other times. And that was what I was looking for in research. What are those conditions? So that was kind of what what drove the, the whole concept of the book. I even found like after I read the book, I'm like, even if I if I didn't have two hours, then I'd be like, just start with five minutes and do something that's more productive than just your emails or to do list. But I want to find out why you came up with two hours. Yes, I am in total agreement with you. There is nothing magical about two hours. 
Um, it's not that you know it should always be two hours. The reason that I said two hours is because two hours is something that anyone can wrap their heads around. You know, two hours is achievable and reasonable for anyone who comes across the idea, even if they don't listen to the rest of this podcast and don't look at the book. Today, you could find a way to have two hours if you really set about thinking about that question. How can I be awesome for two hours, regardless of what else is going to happen today? And so it's achievable and reasonable. And most people have no awesome hours in a week. You know, So like yeah. two hours is a huge increase from that. right? But it doesn't have to be that. Sometimes it's five awesome minutes. Sometimes it's four awesome hours. But I do think that two is a really nice target because it's it seems to be something that we can always achieve. You know, it's like, what are when, what two hours are going to be the most important two hours for me today? You know, what what do I really need to be on for? And maybe it's not precisely two hours, but you know, what's the time when I really, what's the the project I really want to be on for? Is how I generally start. But sometimes it's what time of day do I need to really be on? You know, because the calendar sometimes dictates. Yeah, and the book even gets you thinking. It's like, well, okay, if I'm gonna schedule these two hours what do I really want to work on so it it really makes you refine what you want to get done as opposed to just blindly going into it I think that's one of the most important things if 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 you just did that if you were just more intentional about what you were going to get done you know that already would dramatically change how productive you can be um you talk about ditching efficiency and kind of striving more for effectiveness so why should we not kind of strive for efficiency so built into the idea of efficiency when we're trying to solve for efficiency what most people mean by that is i'm solving a time problem how can i pack more into this time yeah if that's the problem you're trying to solve my argument is you're solving the wrong problem that's not what's going to get you to a point where you're actually doing a lot more stuff and spending less time at it if instead you're trying to solve this problem of how can i be at my most effective even if it means I'm not actually being efficient all the time. In the long run, you're going to spend less time working and get more important work done. Now, you may choose to then work even more because you're getting so much more great work done, but you're not going to just be wasting your time in the same way. So, you know, ultimately, some people might say, well, look, anything that's going to get you to a place where you're spending less time and getting more effective stuff done, I call that efficiency. I'm not going to argue with that. But I do think that that would be kind of throwing out a really important distinction that many people, you know, could really benefit from, which is this idea that when we're thinking about efficiency, we tend to be thinking about solving a time problem. How can I just minimize the time and that that's not the right problem to solve? It's how could I be at my best for the work that matters most? That's the problem to solve. Yeah, no, that's so true. And you talk about things you can do to be more effective, like through your lifestyle which I want to talk about, especially exercise. Like before with exercise, I'd be like, when do I have time to exercise? But now I'm like, oh, when do I want to do the work that's really important? (laughs) And so I want to exercise before then. So can you kind of just talk about how your lifestyle impacts your uh, best work and things you learned that um, you can implement into your life? Well, first of all, also, I just want to say I'm so glad that you fully understood that distinction because... Early on, when the book first came out, one of the you know articles that somebody wrote about it, which got which is a high profile article, listing the things, I'm like, wow, this is great. It's really mentioning everything. And then it got to exercise, and it says, yeah, and the same advice we always get, which is you should exercise more and eat less. And I and I thought, no, that's not the point. That's not the point here. The point is the, the one that you just made, 
which is that we have this relationship with exercise that's where we're missing out on so many of the benefits that it's like a reset switch. If you need to just suddenly be in a place where you can think clearly, let stuff go that doesn't matter, you know, have less anxiety, be able to focus in the ways that you want, there is a switch you can flip. And it's called exercise. And it's not killing yourself exercise. It's like 20 minutes of working up a little bit of a sweat jogging. You know, it's, it's moderate exercise. And when you do that, it's a virtual guarantee. I mean, there are a few things that are so reliable in research. This is, a, in my opinion, it's, you might as well consider it a guarantee. I mean, you know, nothing's 100%, but I think you can operate that way. If you do it, you're going to have those kinds of cognitive and emotional benefits in the period that follows. And we're talking about, you know, starting pretty soon afterwards, lasting for hours, maybe even lasting for 12 hours, you know, maybe even the whole day for you. So then we can start thinking of exercise strategically. And the thing is, your brain and your body, they're all part of one system. You know, it's not just a brain on life support. It's, you, you can't separate them. And that's, I think, one of also one of the, the things that's changed a lot in psychology and neuroscience research in the last 20 years is just this coming to a place where this is more of an assumption that, of course, things that you do with your body are going to affect your brain. How could they not? So exercise, to me, is, is kind of the number one most reliable of all the things that have to do with kind of changing your lifestyle or changing what you do with your body. Exercise is the one. But then also, you know, there's having yourself free of distractions, like the, phys the things that are in your space that you see, they really make it a lot cognitively harder to stay focused, right? So you can remove those for the time when you really want to be on. Um, you know, so there's, uh, and, and food too, you know, that if we're doing things that maintain blood sugar level, then that should make it a lot easier to stay focused. And if we're doing things that are making our blood sugar levels go up and down, then that should make it harder. So think of yourself as one system, you know, it's not just sort of this sort of this thinking machine. It's a biological machine. Yeah, no, it's so funny because I feel like with diet and exercise, we always relate them or correlate them with uh, our health, but we're never like, oh, I'm going to go to the gym to ignite like part of my creative mind. Like it, it was so interesting reading that. And um, I also have been practicing intermittent fasting, which has really helped me like maintain my focus. And I don't get that dip in the afternoon. So I can get more work done and move around that two hours if I need if I can't do it in the morning then I, I do still have my energy levels in the afternoon so you really kind of have to it's like the study of one you have to figure out when your best time is and what you can need and when you what type of exercise gives you that type of energy so it takes a bit of trial and error but it's worth it if you can like tap into it I love that and and the truth is I've had the same reaction when I came across these arguments all of a sudden it was easier for me to have the discipline about what I eat and when I exercise because now I'm talking about immediate benefits that have to do with my creativity or my productivity. It's not some far off thing about maybe I'll look better in three months or maybe I'll live longer in, in 50 years. You know, it's about what's going to happen right now. And so I'm not just trying to like, oh, I'll eat well if I can or, oh, I'll work out this weekend at night. You know, it's, it's, it becomes a totally different way of thinking about it when the food and the exercise are strategic, that you're using them for your productivity. 
Yeah, it's so funny. It's like, oh, wow, you're in such good shape. You've been working out. It's like, yeah, I've been working out so I could write a book. <laughs> right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I also found that I work out more since all of this <laughs> because now I have this regular reason and this immediate reward. No, so I end up working out more. It's so true. It's so true. So what type of work should we be doing outside of this peak mental time? Okay. So this is going to depend on each person. Yeah. So the category is the work that is not cognitively taxing for you. Right. So there are some kinds of work that are probably going to be cognitively taxing for everyone. If you have to make tough decisions, if you need to do something creative, if you need to do something that's emotionally challenging uh, or interpersonally challenging, those kinds of things are probably going to need your peak performance for anyone. But there are some things like, you know, getting back to, you know, I don't know, writing a proposal for, you know, I, I need to submit this thing. It's really just kind of like a pro forma kind of thing, but I have to do it. Some people can't get themselves to do that, right? Well, if you can't get yourself to do it, but you need to do it, and it's been several weeks, that actually it probably is a cognitively harder thing for you than you're letting on. You might say it shouldn't be, but it doesn't matter. It is. Right? In that case, go ahead and give it some of your peak time one day, and you're going to be a lot more likely to actually be able to bang it out. Now, for somebody else, though, they'll say, yeah, that thing isn't that important, and it's not that tough. I'm going to do it at night, or I'm going to do it when I'm down. I'm, I'm not going to worry about trying to make sure I exercise right before it. I'll be able to do it just fine. I've done this thing a hundred times. You know, I'm, I'm basically just filling in the pieces, right? If it's that kind of thing for you, that's the kind of work to do when you're not at your best. Yeah, I like that word cognitively taxing. <laughs> I feel I definitely know the work I can do. Like I sell real estate by profession in Toronto and mm -hmm. I know what I can kind of do on autopilot. So then I try to I'm much more aware of my time now and what time it is in the day and my energy levels and what I should be focusing on. So your book really nailed that down for me. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you. And sort by, that's another way, nice way of thinking about it, sort by autopilot. What can you do on autopilot and what versus what is cognitively taxing? Okay, you talk about decision points in the book too. So what are they and how can we apply them? Okay, so this goes back to that Kind of fundamental challenge which people have been writing about regarding productivity since the dawn of time since the dawn of writing about productivity that is which is that you've got to and and uh, Covey of course articulated it beautifully in the 70s you've got to do what's important and not what's urgent mm -hmm. right unless of course what's urgent is also important what's important is the stuff that's going to get your career ahead it's going to make you fulfilled you know it's going to the stuff that you're going to be able to look back on and say yeah, <clears throat> I really worked on the right things. So that stuff, we know we need to work on that stuff. And you can make a list even and figure out what the important stuff is. You can know what it is and still find yourself saying, how come I'm still not getting to it? You know, I'm just so busy. I just keep reacting to emails and fires that are getting put out. This request that came up and you know, I had to take care of that stuff. It had to happen. It's not like I just couldn't do it. You know, I couldn't just like ignore it all. Right. So this is what happens. Right. We know that there's and sometimes, of course, we're not aware of what is important. And that and so it's not that we always know. But I'm just saying, even when we know, we still often don't get to it. So here's where it can be really useful to understand something about the brain, about why it is we don't get to those things. And for people who have read 
Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman, they'll, they'll recognize this mm-hmm. distinction I'm going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Each one of us, no matter how effective we think we are, we're on autopilot. That we're just kind of, we're operating almost like a, a program is running. You know, it's, it's not that you're not conscious, but if you're really good at real estate, then you start talking to somebody. There's a lot that you don't need to consciously be thinking about. You're in kind of client interaction mode. Yeah. You know, and you can that frees you up because you're an expert. A lot of it can just be on autopilot, and that can free you up to really be paying attention to the person or thinking about alternatives at the same time. Right? And you know, I, you know, love writing and public speaking. Right. So when I'm doing one of those things, I'm in presenting mode or I'm in writing mode. You know, or maybe you know I'm in a client call mode. You know, but when you're in that, you're just on autopilot, and one that we all can recognize kind of the bane of so many people's existence these days is email. You know, we're just kind of in email checking mode. You know, one after another, you check them, you know, and you're feeling responsible. You get the sense of crossing off things off a list. There's all these social obligations, you know, so you want to get back to people. Sometimes it's even fun. You know, but it's like we're just in this reactive mode. We're in this email checking mode. The thing is, autopilot exists because... That helps free up resources. That helps. We, we only bring online our cognitive resources, I mean, our conscious resources, the ones that really help us make thoughtful, deliberate decisions when we absolutely need to. For whatever reason, brains are designed that way. If we don't have to, we conserve that energy. So, this is also kind of the basis of expertise. Somebody who's really good at something, they're actually on autopilot more. They don't have to be thinking about everything they're doing. That's what expertise is because they've already learned through experience. So the thing is, you get into autopilot, hours can go by because you're just being reactive. You're not really as aware of time passing. You're not making decisions about what you should be working on. That's a tough decision. Stepping back, big picture, thinking about what's important, deciding intentionally what to work on. That doesn't happen on autopilot. On autopilot, we're kind of just being reactive. What's next? What's the thing that makes sense in the context of what I'm working on right now? So these decision points then, what these are about is this is about recognizing when. It's a different question. Instead of it's, it's kind of how can I get myself to do this, it's actually when can I get myself to do it. What are those moments during the day when I'm not on autopilot? And you can't just choose to willfully step out of autopilot. That's one of the problems with it. So when am I in a position to actually step back and make one of these bigger picture decisions? Anyone's capable. But we have to be in a position when we're not on autopilot. So when we learn to recognize these kind of key moments, we can really take advantage of them and be more intentional about what we're about to do. If you take five minutes to think about what's important to do next, it can feel like you're wasting a lot of time. You're just like, let's say you finish one meeting. You're like, you know, the natural thing is, okay, what's on my list? What should I do next? How can I be productive? But then if you do that, you tend to just look at your list and pick whatever is most convenient at that point or the thing that happened to pop to mind. But if you step back and take five minutes, take what I'll call a decision point, and really think deliberately, you know, you're just, I'm going to think about this, what is the stuff that's important to me in my career, what's fulfilling to me, that I'm going to look back and say, yeah, I was working on the right stuff. If you take a moment and think about that, let's say it's five minutes. Those five minutes are going to feel like an eternity. It's going to feel like you're wasting time. You're going to want to just be productive. But I assure you, if you indulge in those moments, you're going to waste a lot less time. Time gets wasted when you start on the wrong task and then you just get it going on autopilot. Time does not get wasted when you take these minutes here and there to be deliberate about what's next. Like maybe you use up a half hour across a day on that. 
So these decision points then, so it's a question of when, and when happens when autopilot breaks down. So these are the times. It's either right before you've started a task, right after you've started a task, or when you've been interrupted. Mm. Usually we're just irate when we get interrupted because <laughs> yeah. we feel unproductive. But actually, somebody just took you out of autopilot. If you recognize the opportunity, you can use it and have a decision point there. So, you know, I say right before, right after a task, but I say a task, but also let's say when you wake up in the morning, many people grab their phone and just start reacting. But you don't have to. You can use that moment. Many people arrive at the office and flip open the computer and start reacting, but they don't have to. Right before they do that, they can. When we hang up the phone, you can build in a few minutes to say, okay, I'm going to step away from all of my devices until my mind just becomes clear, and then I'll think about what's important and then start. You know, and sometimes, sometimes you've got a list and it's fairly clear in your mind. It only might take you 30 seconds. You know, sometimes you recognize, oh, well, if I just reacted, I would have ended up working on the right thing. Sure. But overall, I really think we're better off if we take these intentional moments. So that's what the decision points are. There's these rare moments when we're actually capable of thinking deliberately because we're not on autopilot. So we can learn to recognize them and take advantage of them, but we can also start to schedule them into our calendars on purpose. Yeah, I like that so much. Instead of just going to the next thing, like stopping and being like, is this what I want to do next? Like, is there something I could work on that's better? Or, like you said that so beautifully. <laughs> I, Those two minutes can change the course of the next five hours, you know, can change the whole course of the day. That's so true. And we are so reactive. And one of the things I did after reading your book is I realized at work, I always keep my email open on my desktop. And every time an email would come up, I would look at it. So one of the things I implemented after reading your book was every few hours, I would open my email and go through the emails and as opposed to just being so reactive. So you did that, you changed how frequently you were looking at your email, right? Yeah. So it wasn't, you weren't just always responsive right away. Yeah. Um, have you lost your job since then? <laughs> no, I feel like, I, I know real estate, like you're supposed to get back immediately, but it is like when you're constantly being distracted, it is hard to stay focused. And obviously your, your um, question was to prove that people aren't going to get fired if you don't respond with them immediately. So, right. Okay, so I, I think that this is something that is worth experimenting with to whatever degree, if you're listening, that you feel comfortable experimenting with it in a way that feels safe. I encourage you to really start pushing those boundaries and discover what happens. You know, stay within what feels safe to you, but start to explore. And I'll just to offer you an extreme, I mean, I know people who declare email bankruptcy, you know, every so often where... They just simply, whatever I haven't looked at in the last week, I'm never going to look at. I'm going to mark it all as having been read, and I'll never know the difference. Right? I mean, it's a terrifying yeah. concept to a lot of people. I know other people who check their email once a day. So I just want to put that out there. Um, the point is not that you have to do these things, but the point is to recognize, Lauren, as you were saying so nicely, that um, we set ourselves up with all these distractions that make it hard. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of cognitive work to fight against these distractions. Our attention systems are designed to pick up on what's changing, to you know, to alert us, to orient us, to help us then refocus. You know, they are not designed to just keep us focused on one thing. So they're out there doing their job. And so if you put emails up there, of course you're going to keep getting distracted by them. You know, that's like you care about other people. Well, you know, social obligations 
are some of the most important things to people. So email should be one of the most distracting things you can imagine. But then there's other things too. You know, there's the conversations are extremely hard to tune out. It takes a lot of cognitive work. By the way, the more that you have to do this kind of kind of self-control work to fight against the email urge, to fight against the conversation you hear in the background. The more you need it. <laughs> the, the, right, the, the harder it becomes to make decisions. Ah. It actually, you're taxing the same uh, neural resources. It becomes harder to make decisions. People make worse decisions throughout the day, typically. Judges uh, have been shown to, to make worse parole decisions, objectively, Later as on the day the wears day. on. I've heard no, that, I mean, yeah. It's just, it's, it's mind-boggling, but this is how it works. And so let's just acknowledge that this is how brains work and let's work with it. So if you minimize these things, you should be able to, to last longer and have more of that reserve. You know, so those are two of the biggest things. Voices, other people's voices, incredibly hard to tune out, and emails, because there's so much about social information, which is what human brains are most attuned to. But then, you know, anytime you leave work sitting out, reminders of work, things to get to, you know, you're, it'll take your mind in that direction, right? So just having it in your visual field when you're working is also going to be a challenge. Uh, so, you know, so if you really need to, and this, the thing is I'm, I recognize we can't all just always work in some completely quiet, isolated place with a completely clean desk. But we can think about what's the most important work that I need to get done. What's the stuff I really want to be on for? And, you know, if you've got a shared space, can you step away or put on noise-canceling headphones? You know, can, could you do that piece of work from home that day? You know, could you find a way to do it? You know, if you're someone who loves to work in coffee shops, for that one piece, could you find a way to, you know, be elsewhere? You know, or again, those noise-canceling headphones. You know, that, that these, are, these things are going to affect us all. Let's honor it. Right. And, you know, any kind of notifications, not just the emails. Um, but, if, you know, if you're open to minimizing them, I have them all turned off. And they're the simplest things like close your email and um, focus on what you're focusing on. Put little headphones in if there's background noise, you know, mute your phone or put it on airplane mode for an hour. Like they're really easy things. It just takes that like decision to actually do it. So, it, yeah, well, and I think also it helps a lot of people to know that it actually does matter. I mean, I think many people will say, yeah, it probably makes a difference. But once you know something about the research and about how brains work and you say, like, oh, okay, I'm just creating this unnecessary work for myself, then I think it becomes a lot easier to uh, take those steps. I feel like they're simple things, but people don't realize like the actual impact they have. So I, I want to go to the next question. What actually fatigues our brain and what kind of, things can we do to protect this energy? Right. So decisions uh, are can be quite fatiguing, and it doesn't matter how whether they're really big, important decisions, just making any decisions. For example, when you're just flipping through your email and you're deciding, should I respond to this person or not? And once you are responding, you know, should I CC so-and-so? And, you know, and um, have I said this in a way that's offensive? Or is this going to come across as funny or not? You know, any of those things. <laughs> should I put an emoticon? I mean, all of these little decisions, right? And then, of course, there are these other decisions about should I go get a snack and, or, or what work should I do and what should I include in my proposal, you know, some of the more important ones. Any, as we make decisions, we fatigue. It becomes harder. It, we need more motivation in order to keep doing it. Um, and uh, 
Other ones, uh, self-control, are things that tend to fatigue us. So, and we were talking about that with distraction. You know, you need to have a lot of self-control to then keep refocusing. Other things that pertain to self-control are when our emotions are kind of getting the best of us. If you have a really challenging emotional conversation or you get some news that's frustrating or makes you, you know, your heart sink or you just are worried about a conversation that's coming, those things are often going to require some self-control uh, for you to, and that's going to be taxing mentally. In addition, the emotions that we have they kind of color the way that we think that, for example, when you're in a negative mood, we tend to be much more prone to being focused and detail oriented. Um, uh, when we're in a positive mood, we tend to be more kind of creative and open and letting things slide, see more, kind of take in more information at once. So, you know, we, we actually process things differently as well. So there's, um, there's fatigue, but then there's also recognizing that some of these things that have been happening are also kind of they might be making it harder for me to do the task at hand as well. So maybe I've just had a really, you know, uh, got some feedback and it made me feel really bad and a little bit nervous about my position and, uh, you know, wondering, well, what does this all mean? I'm doing a little catastrophizing in my head. So first of all, I, I'm distracted and I have to do a lot of self-control to kind of work through that, right? But then in addition, I've got this emotional state which is kind of triggering the opposite of what you get when you exercise, right? Yeah. Um, that we were talking about earlier, kind of triggering the state that's just going to make it harder for me to to let go of the things that don't need my attention, right? And so I might perseverate. I might end up um, spending a lot more mental energy on those. So that's that kind of is like a compounding effect of the things that drain us mentally. So you know, kind of being aware aware of those things. If I had to then just put it into two categories, three categories, I would say when we're making a lot of decisions, when we're engaged in a lot of self-control, and when there's kind of strong emotions happening. Those are things where you can expect yourself to need to refresh afterwards before you're going to be able to be at your best. Yeah, no, that was really well said. Okay, I want to talk about Benjamin Franklin now. Have you heard about the book Range? Have you read it? It just came out. I haven't read it, no. Oh, uh, I just started reading it. Anyways, I think you'd enjoy it because you talked about Benjamin Franklin and all his hobbies and how it mm -hmm. like benefited him. And I was so happy when I read this because I have so many hobbies. I feel like my boss like makes fun of me. He's like, you're like a 10-year-old kid who has to go to their piano lessons. But I don't <laughs> care. It's beneficial to me. So what can we learn from Benjamin Franklin? There's this myth that... You know, Ben Franklin, it's, you know, he, he did so much, right? He was Mr. Productivity. He wrote the original productivity book, right, his autobiography. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he, you know, started his own business. He came from nothing, you know. You know, it's the youngest of 16 kids or the youngest boy of 16 kids. And then he, at the age of 18, he's already off on his own and he's traveling the world and learning from the greats. And, and you know, he puts other people out of business. And then he also, of course, was... Later on, one of the founders of the country, and you know, he was a postmaster general, and invented all kinds of things that were really wildly popular. The Franklin stove, you know, contributed to scientific advancements, with the, you know, showing that lightning was electricity. I mean, just like the list goes on and on, right? Mm -hmm. The guy did a lot, and he did a lot really well. So there's this one Ben Franklin, right? That we think about, it's like, yeah, he was so productive, right? Nose to the grindstone, working all the time. And there is sort of this myth about him that he was, you know, industrious, right? 
But if you think about what he meant by industrious, if you look at other parts of him, you see, and this is all easy access stuff, it's in his autobiography, he talks about the importance of having fun, he talks about his schedule that he really did try to keep to, like a two-hour lunch just to take care of his affairs, um, you know, every evening, music, conversation, some kind of, like, games, you know, this book club that he just loved going to, and they just kind of read books and chat about it, you know, it was, it was uh, you know, back then they didn't have video games, but you can imagine a group of guys getting together, you know, sharing whatever the latest is, like, like this was just like a group of buddies, and they would talk, and they decided to put all their books in one room. That's how they created the first library, right? Just so they could share them easily. I mean, this is all these, a number of things. They just kind of grew out of his inventions, his ideas, you know, the, the ways that he was contributing. They grew out of just him spending a lot of time enjoying life, right? So you've got this, like, this one version of him where he is just, you know, workaholic, right? Getting all these things done. And then you have this other story about him where he's, and by the way, he was like really funny guy and flirtatious, and he spent all kinds of time having fun. Uh, so you kind of look at these two, and it's like, well, which one Which one do you want to be? Do you want to be the Ben Franklin who is out there enjoying life, having all these hobbies, taking time for himself, you know, experimenting, you know, reading books, just like all these things that make life worth living, right? Or do you want to be the guy who's just like, working all the time, nose to the grindstone, super successful. And the, and I think the reason I like to tell the story that way is because that's, I think, how we often think of it, that we have this choice between them. But the truth is, and what he recognized, was that it wasn't in spite of all of his hobbies and having fun and enjoying life that he was so successful. It was because of those things. You know, he allowed himself to have space for creativity you know, creative breakthroughs don't come from just constantly working all the time. In fact, constantly working all the time blocks creative breakthroughs. Yeah. The All of his hobbies, many of those are the things we know him for. If he hadn't been doing all of that, he would have just been someone who went into printing and made a lot of money and then died rich and we wouldn't know anything about him, right? You know, his contributions come from the fact that he kept on exploring all kinds of different ideas. And we also, you know, there's other other writing, there's a book by Art Markman, who's a professor at UT Austin, um, who you know, talks about how to, how to think, essentially, and that the more you expose yourself to different ways of thinking, just kind of different experiences, the more you are at a later time going to make connections that you wouldn't have thought of otherwise. It's sort of like putting into your brain these different patterns. That, that's one way of thinking about what you're doing when you have all of these different hobbies. And when you're giving yourself time for different experiences, even throughout the day, you know, so that at a later time, you're going to make newer and richer connections than other people will. Yeah, no, so I think, so you know, true. that's the, you know, and Ben Franklin gives us an example, you know, well, I was going to say who wouldn't want to be like Ben Franklin, but maybe that's just my bias. But, but I, oh, think I would love to <laughs> admire many things about Ben Franklin. Right? I do. Yeah. You know. um, okay. Next part I really liked. Uh, which I've been applying so much. It's so every morning I wake up and I have a cup of coffee and I read and my mind wanders so much. Like I'll just look up from the book and think about all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, I'm, I should be reading. Like I wanted to get through, finish this chapter because it's so good. And then after I read your book, I'm like, oh, those times when my mind wanders actually is really beneficial to my life. So why should we let our minds wander? 
Yeah, so this is probably the most counterintuitive thing that I came across and included in the book, yeah. which is when your mind's trying to wander, the instinctual thing to do is to try to fight it and say, you know, maybe even just like beat yourself up and like, what's wrong with me? And, you know, and I can't seem to focus and, you know, I have ADD and things like that, right? And, um, obviously, some people do have ADD, but, but mm-hmm. you know, m- many more of us, you know, say that to ourselves as though there's some issue because my mind is wandering, right? Mm-hmm. And one one thing that's really, I think, important to understand about brains is that they are designed to wander. That if you're just trying to stay focused, what's happening is that you are working against these processes that need to happen. So your focused attention is just one tiny piece of what you can think about it. Unconsciously, there's all kinds of stuff that's in there that's getting processed. You know, you're making connections, you're kind of sorting through, there's sort of feelings, there's plans that are somewhere in the background, there's goals that you have, there's these things that you, you wanted to get to but you didn't get to, and there's a person you wanted to reconnect with, and there's like whether you feel like you're on the right path or not, all that stuff is dancing around in there, right? Mm-hmm. When you're trying to focus and your mind starts to wander, what happens is, and mind wandering, we're talking about just kind of daydreaming. Your mind is drifting. A little bit different than, say, mindfulness, which has also been shown to be, you know, very beneficial, but, but different. Mindfulness is about trying to refocus on something. This is just letting your mind go wherever it goes. Right? Mm-hmm. When people do that, in our brains, we have these two different systems. One for kind of being goal-focused and one for thinking about uh, our social lives. And they're anti-correlated. One's active when the other's not active. Right? And then when the other one's active, the first one's not active. Most of the time. But one of the rare times when they're both active at the same time and they start to integrate is when we're mind-wandering. So imagine what would happen if your kind of social life and your goals started to sort of work each other out and started to have some influence on one another. And you started to integrate that together. We also, when we mind wander, we start to kind of plan for the future and kind of figure out just those sticky problems for how we're going to get to where we want to go in the future. Another thing that happens when we mind wander is we're more creative. If you're working on a creative problem and then you pause and just let your mind drift and you come back to it, you are more likely to come up with creative solutions. You know, objectively, you know, other people would rate them as more creative, as a higher number of creative solutions than if you had just kept working on it the whole time. And it's not just creative in general. It's not like if I'm working on, a, on some architecture challenge and then you know, I mind wander and then come back and then suddenly I'm creative with some painting. It's that, you know, and creative, by the way, is not, of course, just in the arts. It's also like a, you know, a creative solution for how we're going to do something in a consulting engagement or things like that. Any of these would count anytime there's creative thinking need, needed. If it's something you were working on before, then you mind wander, then you're more likely to have creative solutions than if, as compared to no mind wandering. Right? So you get all of these kind of these really nice benefits. The other thing is those things are blocked when you don't mind wander. So when you just keep staying focused on something, you just keep taking in new information, you're blocking that background processing. The, the unconscious processing doesn't get to finish, doesn't get to keep working. So there's some really nice ways to mind wander. Um, and... You know, I kind of like that reframe on it, that, that thinking of mind-wandering as a skill, as, as something that you can have 
good techniques for. Like uh, going to the window, just staring out the window and looking at the cars going by or looking at the people going by, you're just kind of noticing what's happening. That turns out to be a great way to mind wander. So just let your mind start to drift. After a few minutes, you get bored, and then you've done the mind wandering, and you can get back to work. It becomes much easier. You'll find that when you sit down, your mind is not trying to wander again, or at least, you know, not for a few minutes at least, you know, 15, 20 minutes. It's probably normal. But if you try to fight it, all of those benefits I was talking about, they don't happen. Your mind is still kind of wanting a break, and you just find that you can't stay focused, and you don't have those benefits. So if you let yourself mind wander, you'll be back to work sooner, I would argue, than if you, if you don't. Because if you, if you don't mind wander, what happens is this. You just say, I'm just going to take a break, right? And you go and you look at Facebook, or you check your email, or you read the news. When you're doing that, it's still kind of an information faucet. You're still focused on this one new thing coming in. And so you're not actually getting the benefits of mind wandering. Your mind is not just drifting around. So it might be fun, but it's actually not the break that your brain needs. You're not getting a break. You're just doing more of the same kind of processing, just with different information. So you do that, you know, a half hour goes by, you come back, you still can't work. But you mind wander, five minutes go by, you come back, and you're much more effective. And right. I've even you tested schedule it. breaks too. I yeah. mean, that's good for physically getting up or having a little social time. But in between, when your mind wants to wander, it's worth just going ahead, letting it wander for a few minutes. No, it's so true. And I do come back to the book or whatever I'm working on, like faster and relatively more easily. If I just let it happen, instead of being like, oh, you got to get back. It's like, you know, let your thoughts finish and then come back to it. So when should we be scheduling these two hours? Like, obviously, it's different for anyone. But how can someone figure out when is the best time to fig- to have their two hours to do this type of creative work or the most important work? My take on it is this, that um, it should be based on the work and not on the calendar. So when you look at what's the important stuff, um, then think about what can I do to get myself to be awesome (laughs) for that time, right? And, um, you know, then when you look at the calendar, you can be more thoughtful. So, for example... You know, I've got something that I want to write. I really want to be at my best for that. It's assuming it's a normal night. I should be well rested in the morning. And what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to ensure that I don't do anything to unnecessarily tax myself before I get started. It'll be literally the first thing I'll work on without checking email or anything. And if somebody really needs to get in touch with me, they'll call me, like you said earlier. Now, so that's one option is that you can kind of, Say, what's the important work? What's the stuff that I really want to be at my best for? And when could that be? Now, I might say, okay, well, I've got meetings all morning, right? So I can't do that. In which case, I'll say, okay, how can I be at my best? Well, uh, you know, I could exercise for 20 minutes at 2 p.m. And then there's a nice window after that when I could probably really be at my best, you know. Or let's say you're so tired that you don't even have the energy to exercise, well, guess what's needed at that moment? A nap, right? Yeah. And it's worth actually taking it for 10 minutes, right? 20 minutes. And by the way, you know, the research also shows that a 10-minute nap can be some of the most, one of the most effective for short-term productivity because it's, there's almost no cost to coming out of the nap. But a longer nap, there's some kind of, there's a little bit of a delay before you're really fully back at it. So, you know, that's one way to look at it. Now, that implies you have some flexibility in your calendar. Not everybody does. 
or maybe there's a specific event, right? And you know, so then it's a question of I'm doing a some really important presentation. Is then it's really critical for me to look at what's happening right before that. Let's say in the half hour or the hour right before that. You know, am I set up for failure? Is it back to back? Is there something where I'm likely to be taxing myself? If I have a 15 minute bit of flexibility, how can I make sure that I don't just fall into the trap of trying to quote use the time well and like check my email or do something else taxing right before this important meeting, right? Instead, how do I use it to just kind of be mindful and show up at my best, right? You can look at your calendar and know if there's something that's gonna be emotionally taxing. You know, so being aware of that, you can kind of work work that in. Now, some people really like being regular, having a specific, these are going to be my two hours every day. I applaud that. That's not me. I really start with the work, and I do have some flexibility in my calendar many days. And so then I'll say, what's the time when I can really be at my best for that work? No, that's so true. Have you ever read the book When? I have not read that book uh. either. He talks about something called a nappuccino, where you have a coffee and then a nap. Oh, I've heard about that. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I always joke around with my boss that I'm taking my nappuccino, and it's like the big joke in the office now. But no, I'm all for afternoon naps. And um, medications don't don't like affect you instantly if it's not injected or some other. You know, if you're drinking it, it has to go through the GI system. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a delay. You know, maybe there's some condition response where just tasting the coffee or smelling it starts the whole process. But the caffeine effect, it has to go through your whole system. It's not just instant. So well, there's, there's a window there to take a nap. Yeah, no, it's perfect. And it takes like 20 to 30 minutes for the caffeine to get into your bloodstream. So if you have the cup of coffee, take the nap, you wake up and you're, you kind of get the benefits of both. So it's a really mm-hmm. interesting concept. Okay, I, to end this, when are your two awesome hours and what are you working on within them right now? Well, right now, obviously, having this conversation with you. Um, oh, thank so, you. What else? Yeah, so today uh, there were a couple of things. So for me, it, it really depends on what project I'm working on. They are not at the same time every day. Most days I have more than two awesome hours now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it has steadily built. I also now have the challenge with two little kids, I have these sort of restricted windows. And uh, there's no, I have not found a way to work when they're here, right? And they want my attention. So it's these restricted windows when I can be away from the kids. And it's forced me to be even more intentional, even more deliberate about, okay, really, what is it am I trying to accomplish? What's important? And then taking another step about what would a good outcome look like because I'm going to need to do this, you know, I'm going to need to find ways to be on and just, and and be very effective when I do this. So, um, you know, I'm I'm very consistent about getting that exercise. Um, I'm, I check in whenever I take a decision point, I check in with what's my emotional state right now? What's my level of mental fatigue? Do I need to kind of change course? Like, am I not really present enough right now to do the important stuff, in which case, what are some of the things on the list I've been meaning to get to, right? So, you know, it's sort of like this this regular dialogue now that I'm having with myself throughout the day. I'm, you know, with the kids now, I probably take more decision points, make sure that I'm like, really, each time there's an opportunity stepping back and reflecting, because I can't afford to just have time get, get wasted. Um, so having that added pressure has been helpful. 
so yeah, so when do I do it? I do it based on what project do I have, uh, and then mapping that to the, the windows in my calendar that are going to be free. Yeah, that's true. And it's, it's always changing. That's like the beauty of it is you can kind of, it's so flexible that you can put it in depending on what you're working on at that point in your life or your day, like you said, when it's most important. Thank you so much for doing this interview. You were so thorough in your answers. It was incredible. Well, you're very welcome. My aim has been so that somebody listening to this would hopefully find a lot that immediately is just of interest and so they'd want to keep in listening but then afterwards would find that they can really go and do quite a lot that's different immediately and you know and if they want to do even more then you know there's more detail in the book and there's other places to go but just from this should be able to actually go and make some big differences in how productive uh, and fulfilled they can be yeah of course no you've covered a lot and if you do read Range, email me because I would love to hear your opinion on it. I think you'll really enjoy it. Yeah, okay. I will. Cool. Okay. Thanks. Thanks so much, Josh. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks again for doing this. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. That was a conversation between Lauren and author Josh Davis. And you can learn more about Josh by checking out the links in our show notes. You can also follow us on social media at Millennial Minimalists. And if you haven't already done so, please give us a quick five-star rating and review on iTunes. Your reviews support the growth of this podcast and help us interview more exciting guests each week. Thanks again for listening, and we will speak to you next week.